looking to sound like you know what's going on in the world? Pop culture, social strategy, comedy, and other funny stuff? Well, join the club and settle in for the Jeff Dwoskin Show. It's not the podcast we deserve, but the podcast we all need with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Michael, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week. And this week, again, is no exception. No exception. You pulled out all the stops for episode 47. Save some for next week. Am I right? All right. Well, welcome, everybody. This is episode 47 of Live from Detroit, the Jeff Dwoskin Show. So excited to have you. I am your host. Jeff Dwoskin. And we've got an amazing show for you today. Oh my gosh, do we have an amazing show. Art Bell is here. That's right, Art Bell, former media executive and author. He wrote the book Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. What, Jeff? You got the guy who started Comedy Central on your show? Yes, I do. And we're going to talk about the birth of that amazing channel, which, by the way, has its 30th anniversary this Wednesday, April 1st, 2021. Talk about timing. The guy who invented the channel, 30th anniversary. It's like everything's coming together. Can't wait to share my interview with Art Bell with you in just a few minutes. Last week's episode was amazing with Jennifer Candy. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, check that out right after listening to my interview with Art Bell. You'll love it. We talked a lot about John Candy and Jennifer Candy's amazing career. It's a must listen. Special thanks to Jason Taylor at the Three Geeks Podcast for introducing me to Jennifer. Can't thank you enough. Also, you may have seen me this past week live on Twitch with Scott Curtis at the Behind the Bits talk show. Tons of fun with Scott Curtis. I think now technically I'm a regular. I've been on that show so much. So that's fun. Follow him. And also, if you're into the live thing, don't forget, I got Crossing the Streams, the live show I host every Wednesday at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. We talk about great TV shows you should be streaming. We got a great cast that talks through a bunch of great shows every week. We go live on Facebook and YouTube. Follow us on YouTube at the Jeff Dewaskin Show channel, and you'll be alerted every time we go live. It's super fun engaging, interactive. This past week, actually, we were talking about Justice League. A lot of us saw that movie. We talked about the Justice League. Oh, my goodness. All right. what? Who's calling? I, I keep changing the number. I, I, I apologize. Hang on one second. Hello? Oh, hello, Jeff. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Listen, I was listening to you all talk about the Justice League. Oh, great. So you saw it? Did you, did you see how dark it was? Jeff, did you did you notice how dark it was? So dark. It was beautiful how dark it was. You know, Prince of Darkness and all that. You know, so it's just who I've been my whole life. Yeah, I can see how you could relate to that. Did you see the Joss Whedon version, the original version? Uh, it, the, the, the one of the 2017, the only one. That it, wasn't, it wasn't as good because they didn't have as much. It wasn't as dark. Hey, you know, why don't you explain the, the movie to everyone who's listening who maybe didn't see it? So basically, you have all these characters who's got got to get together because there's this 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 guy, right, Steppenwolf, right, who was who was a band in the seventies that we used to have some serious bangers against, and they all they they're going out to find his dark side, right, because he's got to bring these boxes of mummy boxes to him, and then once they get the mummy boxes, then they all they like they got to team up, so you got to have like the Batman, and then you got to have like you, you know your Superman's got to come back and everything, and and then basically it's done real dark, and they get a whole team together to go to go fight everybody, and you know it, it was unfortunately Steppenwolf died, man. I wasn't ready for that. He's all he's super dead. Like his head took his horn off and everything, man. It's, it wasn't very rock and roll. Who's your favorite character in the movie? So many superheroes. Well, I'm kind of mixed on that, you know, because there's a lot of good characters. Like I'm partial to Bats, right? But he didn't actually like take anybody's heads off. I mean, there were a few times there were some flying things that were pretty cool. But I, I, I... would you recommend the movie to anyone who wants to see it? Uh, definitely, man. If you like black, if you like darkness, like you know, I like I like darkness, and if you like the Prince of Darkness, and it's just heavy, and there's lightning with it, with that Flash Cat played by Ezra Miller, he's good too. You know, they just it was really well done. There's a whole lot of points of like you know, dirty, evil, like this murder. It's really good. It's really good. I really liked it. All right, well, I'm glad you liked it. Hey, well, thanks for calling in. I really do appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me, Jeff. I can't wait to keep listening and take it easy on the rock and roll. Love you all, boy. All right, bye. All right, well, you never know who's going to call in to live from Detroit, the Jeff DeWaskin Show, no matter how many times I change the phone number. All right, on to the next thing. 
I do want to take a moment to thank everyone that has followed and subscribed and liked the podcast. Remember, it's absolutely free to listen to the podcast on any of your favorite podcast apps, CastBox, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, anywhere you listen to podcasts. You can listen to Live from Detroit, the Jeff DeWaskin Show. So thank you very much for that. I also want to thank everyone for Supporting the sponsors week after week after week. It means the world to me. It really does. I can't thank you enough. It's what helps us keep the lights on and helps me keep bringing the show to you week after week. This week's sponsor, I'm excited for this one, 9-Volt Batteries. That's right, 9-Volt Batteries. When was the last time you thought about us? Probably, probably when your smoke detector stopped working. That's right, 9-Volt Batteries, powering the stuff that was invented decades upon decades ago. Got a smoke detector? Got a garage door opener? Got a radio? Then you probably need to have some 9-Volt Batteries lying around. That's right, 9-Volt Batteries with a five-year shelf life. You're bound to find a need for a 9-Volt Battery over the course of five years. So definitely pick up some 9-Volt Batteries today, put them on that shelf, and one day when you need it, you'll be like, oh, God, I, uh, I know where the 9-Volt Battery is. It's over there next to the next to the onions. Yeah, in the pantry. I don't know why it's next to the onions. It just is. If you don't have 9-Volt Batteries lying around, definitely go buy some and just make sure you have some in the house. It's one of those things that when you never know when you're going to need it, and when you need it, you need it. Consider yourself warned and go prepare yourself. All right. Well, I'm excited to talk to Art Bell about the 30th anniversary of Comedy Central, the channel he started. I am also excited about the upcoming 50th episode of Live from Detroit, the Jeff DeWaskin Show. It's going to be a big one. I got a huge guest prepared. It's going to be amazing. Maybe we'll do some promotions around it. I did just send out the personalized signed books from Jackie the Joke Man to the three winners from that contest. That's right. Follow at Jeff DeWaskin Show on Twitter and on Instagram. We do giveaways. Love my fans. Love my listeners. We do lots of fun stuff for you here. And now it's time for the social media tip. All right. Here's a tip for you guys. If you go to Spotify, you can share to your Facebook or Instagram stories. And here's the cool thing about that. You can then link to whatever you posted. So if you want to share your favorite song or your favorite episode of Live from Detroit, the Jeff DeWaskin Show, you don't need 10,000 followers on Instagram to have them be able to link to it, which normally you do. You just post the episode, then they can link right to it. Same thing with any songs or anything you want. It's a neat little trick for all you podcasters out there listening. Check out Spotify and sharing to stories, both on Instagram and Facebook. And also, my listeners, great way for you to share an episode of Live from Detroit, the Jeff Dewaskin Show. Wait a minute, Jeff, did you just use the social media tip to trick us into promoting your show? Yes, I did. And that's the social media tip. Guess what time it is? It's time for me to share my conversation with Art Bell with you. You're going to love it. And here you go. Ladies and gentlemen, I am so excited to introduce you to my next guest. He invented the greatest cable channel of all time. And we're going to talk about it. Comedy Central. Art Bell is with us. We're going to talk about his memoir, Constant Comedy, How I Started Comedy Central and Lost My Sense of Humor. It's an amazing read. And we're going to dive into some awesome stories from it. I want to welcome to the show, Art Bell. Hello, Art. Hello, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you here. A couple of things just off the bat before we get into the whole Comedy Central thing. You spent some time at U of M. That's That's uh, right. Yeah. Are you a U of M? guy half my money goes there my daughter goes uh, there she's probably having a great time well actually not not this semester <laughs> she's managing it's oh, it's getting good, a little good. a little normal great place great school you studied u of m economics there uh-huh. that's that's important because it eventually ties you to how you got your job at hbo exactly you were moodle moodle the tailor model the tailor okay you were muddle the tailor and filler in the roof yes the reason i bring that up well i want to hear all about it but uh, my hebrew name is Tevia. Well, Tuvia is really how it's pronounced in Fiddler on the Roof, but that's my my Hebrew name is after the main character in Fiddler on the Roof. So when I read that, I always that so always makes me think of that. So, <laughs> Did you ever see the show? I think I have seen it once, or at least I've seen the movie, I think. I don't know if I've ever seen the play, yeah. but it's something that I definitely want to. So, so you have a uh, performance background. Yes, minor performance background. I feel lucky that I got the opportunity to do some performing and some comedy on stage. 
stage and stuff. Very cool. The economics, that's what ties you to your eventual job at HBO, where you brought your brainchild of the Comedy Channel, which became Comedy Central to life. You joined them in the very interesting field of economic modeling. (laughs) (laughs) That wasn't my plan for getting into the entertainment business, but it certainly was my entree because I was working at CBS at the time and I found it incredibly stifling. It was like the post office of the entertainment world. It was just layers of management and nothing really interesting going on. I wanted to be close to the product. A friend of mine called from HBO, and this was the mid-80s, and he said, you got to come over here. It's unbelievable. Everybody is so excited about the television we're creating here. I said, great. You know, can I get a job? He goes, yeah, well, the reason I'm calling is they're looking for someone who can do econometric forecasting because they need someone to forecast subscribers. And he says, I think you're the only one I've ever met in the entertainment business who has any background in that. I said, yeah, I could do that. So I went over, got the job. And despite the fact that I, the last thing I wanted to do at HBO was econometric forecasting, that's what I did. And I was happy to be there. And I figured, okay, and now I'm at least close to a really interesting product. HBO was doing fabulous things in those days. Yeah, home box office. I think back in those days, they had that cool opening with the city where it was panning the city. Oh, yeah, you remember that. Still the greatest HBO opening ever. And widely, widely imitated since. Yeah. I have to say, I've seen that that kind of thing so many times. Such a classic. So you went from CBS to HBO. You're doing all the economic modeling, all that fun stuff. <laughs> well, they, it made me think that probably will spark a lot of people going, hmm, <laughs> there's alternate ways to get into places. I mean, you went from economic modeling to running uh, and creating a channel. It's an important thing to consider for anybody who's looking to get into any industry. You don't have to walk in there based on knowing exactly what they're doing. You walk in there with a bunch of skills and talents, whatever they are, they may need that. And if they do, take the opportunity. I knew I didn't want to do econometric forecasting forever or even any kind of analytical work forever. I had been a consultant in Washington, D.C. for three years, and I decided I wanted to get out of that. So again, it didn't exactly light my fire to go to HBO and do that. But I said, okay, I'll do as good a job as I can. And, you know, maybe I'll get a better job out of it, closer to programming or comedy or whatever I want to do. So when did the idea of the Comedy Channel kind of creep into your head and what was sort of the pathway to get other people on board, get some stakeholders involved? That's a big question. I will tell you that I went to Wharton Business School after Washington, D.C., where I was an economist, and asked when I got there, I said, you know, I'm interested in television and the arts and stuff like that. Any people like that around? Are there clubs or something? He said, no. However, they do the Wharton Follies, which is a musical comedy review. So I went down to the meeting, and sure enough, there's all these people who had been, you know, professionals on Broadway, professional performers, writers. Suddenly, I found like all my friends at Wharton. We put on the show the first year. Second year, I wrote the entire show, and I was in it both years. It reminded me how much I love comedy and how much I love to write comedy. And and it was very successful in that I thought it was funny, (laughs) and I got a lot of good feedback on it. When I came out of Wharton, I wanted to get a job in the television business, and I said, why is there no comedy network? It it just seemed like a giant hole in the market. There's music. There's ESPN sports network. There's news networks. All kinds of you know, single focus networks. There was no comedy network. And I I just completely baffled me. So I kept that in the back of my mind. And not only did I do that, I thought about what it would be and why it would be and what would it look like. And this ruminated, you know, I ruminated about this for years from the time I got out of business school through the time I pitched it uh, at HBO. When I was at CBS, I knew I couldn't pitch it because like nobody would care. (laughs) They they didn't want to hear from the, the junior guys about anything. But when I got to HBO, I started talking about it a little bit. Nothing really happened. And then one day I said, you know what? This is ridiculous. I, I really should talk to somebody seriously about this. And the project I had been working on went south. It was canceled, basically, so I had nothing to do. And they weren't going to fire me. They said, you know, stick around. We like you. We'll figure something out. But, you know, for the meantime, you're on the bench. So I made an appointment with Bridget Potter, who was the head of HBO programming. You know, kind of legendary in the business. You got to remember, HBO was was what Netflix is now. It was the biggest thing going. Right. Still pretty big, obviously. She was the head of programming, and people considered her genius. I mean, so I was scared. But I put myself together. I went into her office, got my courage together, and I said, Bridget, I think HBO should start an all-comedy network. You know, 24-7 comedy. I think she said, stop right there. That is the worst idea I've ever heard. And let me tell you why. First of all, there's too much comedy on television already. Secondly, who wants to watch 24 hours of comedy? And third, what comedian 
is going to be on that channel. You think Whoopi Goldberg is going to want? No. You think Robin Williams is going to be known? You think any of these really A-list comedians are going to be on this channel? Absolutely not. They would never consider it. Thanks for coming. You don't know much about television, but you seem like a nice fella. See you around the cafeteria. And I left. And I was as you can imagine, kind of devastated, but not for long, not for long. I, I really thought almost immediately as I walked out of there that she was wrong. There needed to be a comedy channel in the world. And if HBO wasn't going to do it, I'd have to take it somewhere else. And I started putting together a proposal, including finances, and here's what the programming looks like, and here's how you market it, and here's, here's my vision for it, basically. And I thought I'd staple that to my resume and send it out, get a new job, see if who wanted to do it. And I think back on that, how crazy that whole concept is of leaving a good job in hopes of doing that. But I was serious about the Comedy Network. And then one day, as I'm working on this, because I had nothing else to do, my boss's boss walked by and said, what are you doing? You don't have anything to do. And I said, "Ah, I'm working on this idea I had. He took a look at it and he said, wow, this is really cool. Comedy Network. He says, I think Michael Fuchs, the chairman of HBO, should see this. I said, great. You know, that'd be terrific. He says, let's go. And I said, what, right now? And he said, yeah, right now. We're going to go down to Michael's office. I know Michael. We'll get in. We'll talk to him about it. Now, you got to imagine me, junior person at the at the company. If I ever got into the elevator with Michael Fuchs accidentally, I would break into a cold sweat. This guy had just been declared the most powerful man in Hollywood by the New York Times Magazine. Picture was on the cover. He was kind of a scary guy. Meanwhile, we're waltzing into his office. I have no presentation materials. I've had about 30 seconds to think about what I was going to say. I sat down and pitched him. I did it with a lot of passion. I really kind of shared my vision for what the channel should be. And I think I got to him when I said, if this thing is successful, it could be the center of the comedy universe. And I think that would be great. And Michael, who loved comedy, said, yeah, that would be great. He said, let's give it a try. That's awesome. I I feel like we're... Bridget missed the concept was no one's going to watch a comedy station 24/7 that's true but i mean but the beauty of a comedy station 24/7 is that when you need it it's there yes no one was more surprised that she brought that up as an objection than me because of course i wasn't assuming anybody would stare at the te- the channel for that long but there were single subject channels there and i thought that comedy deserved one. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So Michael Fuchs, the most powerful man in the world. Well, Hollywood. They said Hollywood. The most powerful (laughs) man in Hollywood. You have him in the palm of your hand. (laughs) Hardly, but uh, I like the sound of that. What were some of the key things that helped you convince him during your pitch? When you go into something like that, you got to do it with a lot of passion. You can't just kind of explain the situation. You have to do everything but jump up and down. I mean, you really have to push your way through it. The second thing that was very important to Michael and very important to a lot of people who said you can't do a comedy network, and that was, it's not going to be expensive. I mean, comedy is typically expensive. Lots of writers doing original comedy of any kind is very expensive. And I said, well, I thought a lot about that. And I think I've got a way to get into this business without spending a lot of money. And the way is this. We're going to take comedy clips from stand-up comedians' shows, from comedy movies, from comedy sitcoms, any kind of comedy anywhere. We are going to clip two or three minutes out, and we are going to put that on, and it's going to be sort of nonstop, short-form comedy. And we'll have guys sitting at a desk pitching to it, comedians probably pitching, saying, here's a clip from Eddie Murphy or whatever they're going to say, and talking about it. And the great news about that, I said, is that we can get those on a promotional basis. We won't have to pay for them because the studios, if I'm right, will think it's a great idea to have their movies and television shows promoted on a full-time basis. And Michael thought, yeah, that sounds like a good idea, but you know, you might have some obstacles like the unions, the DGA, the Writers Guild, the Directors Guild, the Music Guild. I said, yes, I thought about that. And it may in fact be the case, but I think here's what we do. We go there first, we basically convince them. And if they say no, we'll think of something else or we won't do it. But that's the way we can get into this thing. So he said, okay. And in fact, that's what happened. We went to all the guilds. They all said, hey, this is fabulous, you know, fine. It sounds like it's good for the industry. So we started down that road. We started clipping (laughs) anything we get our hands on. The good news is HBO had a lot of materials because they were running a television movie channel. So we had the materials there and we had a group called the Cliptomaniacs. That's what we named them. A bunch of young producers who were just sitting there watching movies and stuff all day, trying to find the funny parts. And I loved them because I'd be walking down the hall and they'd say, Art, Art, come here. You got to see this. You know, it's from the producers. It's the funniest thing. I forgot how funny it was. And they'd show it to me. And, you know, it was a little bit, it took a, a lot of skill, actually, to find those funny parts and to find two and a half or three minutes to cut out. And we ended up with a huge pile of this stuff before we launched. 
So, all right, so money played into it. So yes, love definitely. of comedy right. and your economist background. Well, my, at that point, my economist background had nothing to do with it. No, but I mean, just, just your way to, to manage the money. And, and I, I, will, I will say this. I was pitching to the right guy because in addition to being the most powerful man in Hollywood, Michael Fuchs was the guy who put really high-class comedy on HBO. He started those HBO comedy specials, those one-hour specials with Klein, with Carlin, with... Whoopi, Billy, you know, Robin Williams, uncut, very highly produced. And that really put HBO on the map for comedy. So Michael, a very funny guy, loved comedy, loved funny people, loved funny anything. So it's not like I was pitching somebody who didn't care or for whom comedy was, you know, a sideline. That was lucky, I think. The final thing I must have said to Michael that got his attention was, you know, Michael, HBO is doing a lot of comedy now. We are really known for comedy. But I said, there's also other guys doing comedy. And I said, right now, one of the biggest comedy shows on television is on A&E. And that was true, because if you asked anybody, like, where do you find comedy on cable? They would say, oh, yeah, A&E, Evening at the Improv, every night, 7.30. And they played it every night at 7.30. And when you do that... It's like this wall of comedy programming that's always there at that time of day. And they became known for it. I said, you really don't want to cede the comedy space to A&E. Wouldn't you feel silly if they became known for comedy in a way that eclipses what we're doing? Competition is always good. It's always good to get the competitive juices running when you're pitching a new idea like, hey, if we don't do it, the other guy's going to do it and he's going to eat our lunch. Cool. So, all right. So the name of this channel at this point is called the Comedy Channel. The Comedy Channel. Yes. Because... And we named it because, like, what else do you call a comedy channel other than the comedy channel? Right. <laughs> Cornering the market on, <laughs> on the go-to name. So a couple things happen. One, two days after you announce, MTV announces they're going to create their own comedy channel. Ha. So now we've gone from no comedy channels in the world to all of a sudden two on the horizon. Yeah, how crazy is that? I, I remember that moment because I was coming back from L.A. where Michael had thrown, Michael Fuchs had thrown this giant press conference announcing the comedy channel. And not only did he announce it, not only did he own it, he said it was going to be the greatest <laughs> The greatest cable channel. I'm laughing because I was so scared when he said this. It's going to be the greatest cable channel ever. It's going to be so funny because HBO knows comedy and we are going to create a comedy channel that's better than anything. That sort of scared me that he told the entire world that. Then I'm coming back from L.A. a couple of days later, and there it is in the newspaper. Ha! is announced by MTV Networks to compete with the Comedy Channel. And I thought, man, that is crazy that they really just decided probably the day we launched that they better not cede the comedy space to HBO. And why should they? They know cable television better than anybody. They got MTV. They got Nickelodeon, Nick at Night. They know how to do this stuff. They put out a press release. And that was really my first lesson in don't underestimate the competition. They are going to find you. To, to what you said earlier, stoking competition. When Competition can breed greatness and, and make you up your game. And so, all right, so now you're doing that. You're, you're now shoring up against Ha. And then the guilds that we talked about earlier, the director's guild says you can't use any of these clips that your clipomaniacs have created. Yeah, that was one of the biggest disappointments of my entire life, I have to say. Because I had this thing all beautifully planned. It was all working. Clips, we had tons of this stuff. It was weeks before we were going to launch. And the Directors Guild called our lawyers and said, the board said no. We assumed the board would say yes, but there was one board member who changed his mind and he said, I don't want them to do this. And that's the end of that. You can't do it. I was crestfallen as you can imagine, very disappointed. I went back to my office and my staff said, and they said, well, now what are we going to do? And I said, well, we're going to develop plan B. Let's see how we do that. And that's what we did. So the person who voted no is rumored to be a coin, <laughs> Woody Allen. Yes. Woody Allen. I say rumored because I never actually verified it and it was never verified to me. But the lawyer said that the DGA suggested that it was Woody Allen who objected. And I thought, oh my God, Woody Allen, comedy hero, just shut down the comedy network? That is an irony that needs fuller explanation, I thought. Never ver verified it, but there it is. Yeah, for Woody Allen to disappoint everyone. That, who could see that coming? Um, <laughs> a little foreshadowing there. Little for, the second I read that in your book, I'm thinking to myself, this is why HBO did Allen v. Farrow. <laughs> yeah, right. Payback <laughs> this is, time. This is their payback. For payback time for the Woodman. Screwing them with the, when the comedy <laughs> channel was at its uh, most needy and shoring up against Ha 
and then gets the ground pulled out from under them. Well, they did pull the ground out from under us. But as I said, we didn't fold. We didn't say, okay, that's the end of that. Let's shut it down. We just said, okay, how are we going to do this? How are we going to launch? How are we going to get it out on time? What's the new plan? Because we were in it up to our eyeballs. There was, there's, no, there's no turning back at that point. Okay, so the Comedy Channel launches. Yes. We push the big red button. Yep. Little scene from Monty Python kicks it off. Right. And one of the shows that you guys introduced was Mystery Science Theater 3000. Yeah. Tell us how you kind of, you guys discovered that show and, and just its path to cult fame. Yeah, it's really kind of an interesting story. And actually the show discovered us. But what happened is we had a head writer at the channel. We hired a guy named Eddie Gorodetsky, who's still a writer in Hollywood. Very funny guy. And Eddie got us together and he, he said, uh, guys, we really need a sh-. That's how he talked. <laughs> we really need a show where comedians sit in front of the television and they make remarks. They make comedy remarks. And we said, okay, you know. He says, yeah, it's like a watch us watch television show. I said, okay, we got it. So we start, everybody starts developing that show. And then a few days later, in the mail, comes a cassette and there's a uh, note in there and says, hey, we hear you guys are starting a comedy channel. Is this something that would interest you? And we put the cassette in it. It's Mystery Science Theater 3000. These guys had been doing it for fun at an independent television station in Minneapolis. It was Joel, two robots watching cheesy movies. We thought it was hysterical. We got on a plane the next day. We made the deal. We thought, this is great. And I will say this. People ask me when I knew the comedy network was going to be, you know, the comedy channel was going to be a success. That was the moment. And the reason was, I always thought that if we had a comedy channel, then great comedy, innovative comedy would come to us after a while. And here it was. We hadn't even launched and they found us. This was a show, Mystery Science Theater 3000 would not have ended up on CBS or NBC, would not have ended up on HBO even. And who knows if it ever would have seen the light of day had there not been a comedy network. And so I thought, this is a marker of success. That's awesome. I remember uh, watching that show, and it's it's hilarious. You, so it was, it's interesting, though. Like, you guys were thinking, uh, hey, we need Watch Us Watch programs, and one shows up in the mail. It just speaks to, like, the universe. Sometimes uh, you just got to ask for things sometimes. That's right. That is exactly right. And, I, you know, I'm not religious, and I'm not mystical, but, man, when it, that was just a thank you moment. Thank yeah. you, whoever sent this our way. I just really feel felt it was just a crazy karma moment. When the universe works. Yeah. It works. So the other show of note from that early time period, or there were many, but uh, Short Attention Span Theater. Yeah. And this was hosted by John Stewart, who later rose to fame on Comedy Central in The Daily Show, and Patty Rossborough. Patty Rossborough. This is an infamous story in the sense that you guys fired Patty and really pissed off John. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much the entire outline of the story. <laughs> is that the whole story? No, no, no. It, it, it's interesting because I actually thought the two of them were great together. And so did everybody when they had them co-host Short Attention Span Theater. I think what happened is John Stewart was so completely funny and dominant that he talked a lot and Patty laughed a lot, you know, and that was pretty much the routine. And I thought it was great, actually. I thought she was pretty funny, even when she laughed. I thought she had a funny laugh. She was a, a very, very funny comedian. But it was decided, not by me, but some of the other people working on those shows, that Patty was not going to stay with the show. So they let Patty go. And John Stewart, when he found out, was so angry and so indignant. He said, you can't do that. You can't just fire someone like that. And you can't fire my partner without telling me. That's ridiculous. What do you think this is? A corporation? No, it was a corporation. It was so evident that the future John Stewart, who was empathic and sensitive and smart and cared about his fellow human beings, was really on display at that moment. Now, for whatever reason, and I can't honestly remember the reason, it came to me. They said, Art, John Stewart is very upset. He's threatening to quit. You're going to have to go down and calm him down and talk him into staying. I probably said, why me? But anyway, I went down there to the studio and I had a conversation with him and he, he was very mad, but I did somehow talk him into not quitting. And he did stay with the channel for a long, long time. But I remember the indignation and his upset very, very clearly. And listen, he stayed with the channel for a long time. Great guy to work with. Deserves all the fame that he, that he got on The Daily Show. Mark Marin later took over Short Attention Span Theater. He was on Short Attention Span Theater. I'm not sure he took it over as such, but... Host, I mean. Is he it? hosted. He hosted. There were a lot. Of, actually, Bill Mark had a stint hosting Short Attention Span Theater. That was that became sort of the go-to clip show for comedy, the Comedy Channel and later Comedy Central. And that was a show that, that really...
really kind of put on display the original concept we had for the channel of short form programming, just kind of piled on top of each other. And it worked. The show worked. So Ha launches. Yeah. Ha launches. So now we have the cable comedy wars. We went from Art Bell thinking, hey, there should be a comedy channel because there is none being shut down by Bridget, swooped, <laughs> saved by the most powerful man in Hollywood, Michael Fuchs. And now suddenly there's war. Now there's multiple channels doing comedy. And one of the first notable scuffles, if you will, between you guys was the fight over the bidding up for Saturday Night Live to re-air Saturday Night Live. That's right. How detrimental do you think it was to have lost that scuffle? At the time, it was crushing to us. However, you know, like anything else, when there's that kind of a bidding war, price of Saturday Night Live was driven up to atmospheric, you know, stratospheric levels, and we got outbid. I think it speaks to the fact that we had a head start, and we had pretty good comedy network going. Not great, you know, nobody was great six months into it, but we really had some traction, and they needed something, and they felt they needed it more than we did. But I was very upset when we lost it. But in the beginning, the critics were not kind, right? We launched into a critic barrage. And I think one of the reasons is, as I said, Michael Fuchs was so proud of the channel before it launched. And Michael was, you know, he was as a powerful man. There was a little bit of schadenfreude going around there in, among the press reporters who thought, okay, isn't it fun to watch Michael Fuchs fall flat on his face on the second day that the comedy channel is out? And he thought it was, he said it was going to be great. And guess what? It's not great. And they wrote that, guess what? It's not great. It's not funny. We were called the Gong Channel. We got terrible reviews across the board. It was really quite quite a disaster. And a disaster, but you got to remember, I went to work every day thinking, how can we avoid getting shut down? That was my new mindset. Like, how do we keep this going? Because I really wanted to. I felt a lot of the weight of the project on me because I'd pitched it. And by this time, there's hundreds of people involved, obviously. I had to keep it going. But the press savaged us. We didn't have much of an audience at that point either. We were only distributed to a couple million people because you had to go cable operator to cable operator to get on a cable system in a city. So, you know, we were on in Detroit, maybe we were on in, in Phoenix, but we weren't on in New York until, you know, months after we launched in Manhattan. We really didn't premiere to very many people. And that was good. I think that was good because it allowed us to repeat the programming a lot as we added subscribers. Then if you hadn't seen it, as we said, it was new to you. And so we got to repeat our programming. Very cool. But you guys did license Kids in the Hall. Yeah, well, we were lucky. You know, our parent at that time, HBO, had discovered Kids in the Hall and they were a very successful show on HBO and HBO said <laughs> they threw us a lifeline. I mean, listen, Michael was very, very concerned that this thing was going to flop. And actually, that's where the subtitle for my book comes from. Michael called us in probably four or five, six months into the channel and said, it took a comedy channel to make me lose my sense of humor. He was so angry. And I looked around and nobody was laughing. And I thought, man, that's that's not good. We had to figure out how to pull it together. Ultimately, I think we did. I mean, we were head to head with, with Ha for six months. And I thought we were winning. We had better ratings. At that time, we had better reviews. We had Mystery Science Theater 3000, which was, a you know, you have one basically hit on your channel. You're good to go in that in those days. And we had a lot of notice for that. We were playing a lot of stand-up comedy because we found stand-up was very easy for the, for the audience to watch. We got more stand-up. We produced some stand-up. And I thought things were going really, really well. And then I got a phone call that they were merging. Ha! and comedy channel. And I was, you know, again, another in a string of disappointments. In, in one way, though, you, you could look at it as had Han not existed and the savaging happened, channel may have been canceled, right? So it's possible that the fighting and then the eventual merger is what led to the ultimate success of Comedy Central. Well, I guess we're getting into a conversation of whether there's multiple universes and uh, <laughs> how things would have played out otherwise. I have no idea. I, I prefer to think that Comedy Channel would have gone on to a brilliant career without the, the competition. Of course, looking back on it, somebody was going to show up with a competitive channel. It just happened that they did it six months after we launched. One of the big reasons I was upset with the merger when I first heard about it is because I figured I'd lose my job. Mergers don't necessarily guarantee that you're going to have your job. And in fact, many people who worked at the Comedy Channel lost their jobs, and many people who worked at Ha lost their jobs. So I felt very lucky when they said, okay, you and the head of programming from Ha are getting together. You're going to figure out what the new channel looks like, put together a team, put together the programming and rename the channel and launch it in the next few months. Good luck. And that's that's how that happened. 
So you end up with Comedy Central, the name we all know and love today. Yeah, we ended up with Comedy Central as a name, which turned out to be a very, very lucky thing. But those, I have to say, just to focus on the merger, most mergers end in failure in business. Most mergers have a really tough time because you're combining two different corporate cultures. And in our case, we had two different concepts for a comedy channel. I talked about ours. And at that time, you know, by the by the end of it, we had attracted an audience, and the audience was young men looking for edgy comedy. That's what we were doing. And Ha had gone sort of more classic sitcom. And in fact, their motto was comedy for people 5 to 95. You know, they really wanted to throw out a wide net. So combining those channels was tough. And there was actually talk among the parents, meaning MTV Networks and HBO, that the channel, the combined channel, would not necessarily make it through the year. But the good news is, once again, I was very committed to making sure a comedy network survived. And I found out that my opposite number and the other people on the other side were also committed to seeing a comedy channel one way or the other survive. And we worked it out quickly. <laughs> we got together and said, okay, how are we going to make this work? Now think about the good news from my point of view as a programmer. We just got Saturday Night Live for our comedy channel. One thing you didn't mention is Saturday Night Live had reruns had never been shown before they were licensed at that point because they were shown on NBC, then they were rerun in the summer, and then they went into the basement at NBC. Lauren Michaels didn't allow them to be shown anymore. When we went after them and did that deal, that was a big deal in the business that Lauren licensed those. That's pretty awesome. So your next big thing is a live State of the Union sort of... I guess, roast with Al Franken. Yeah, that's right. That was, you know, we had a group at Comedy Central we called the Buzz Committee. And the Buzz Committee was a bunch of wise guys and wise gals, probably eight or 10 of us from around the network, you know, people who loved comedy and loved to just talk about it. And we get together once or twice a week and say, okay, what's happening in the world? What can we take advantage of? Get a little press on, get noticed, maybe a new show. What, what do we got? And we just brainstorm and things would come up. And one day somebody said, well, you know, listen, the State of the Union address is coming up. And everybody said, well, that's boring. <laughs> who cares about that? And then somebody else said, well, you know what? We could have, some, have a comedian making comments during the address. And someone else said, yeah, we could do it live. That would be good. We'd probably get a lot of attention for that. And there it was. State of the Union undressed, we call it. And Al Franken, as you mentioned, was the first host. I like to say we got Al Franken started on his uh, political career. Uh, and he likes to say that's not true. But <laughs> anyway, Al Franken was the first host and he did a terrific job. And that was really, a, I think that was a turning point for Comedy Central. Not that it wasn't going to be successful from then. We knew things were kind of moving in the right direction. But suddenly the press looked up and said, you know what? These guys at Comedy Central, they're doing something. They're doing interesting things. We saw this State of the Union undressed, and that, that's the future of comedy. And, of course, you can draw a straight line from that to The Daily Show. Right, right, right. It was coverage of political, political stuff. And, in fact, Jon Stewart did work on uh, covering the conventions that year. So we were in it. We were in that news area, and it, it did great things for us. So the next year was Dennis Miller, and there's a great story with that. But we're going to let everyone go buy the book. To get that one. <laughs> yeah, right. If I tell all the stories, you don't have to buy the book. Right, right. To... There's a killer Dennis Miller story. <laughs> Constant comedy, everyone, a memoir, Art Bell. We'll, we'll plug it again at the end of the show, but we'll save that one. But then Bill Maher, to get back to Bill Maher from earlier, he pitched you politically incorrect, which was the earlier incarnation of what is now real time with Bill Maher on HBO. Correct. How did that pitch go? Obviously, well, you got it. And then... Well, There's a better story about, about the marketing than the actual pitch of the show. <laughs> I mean, the, the interesting thing about the pitch of the show is that Bill Maher was basically an unknown comic. I mean, he'd been around. He actually had done a movie, I think. And he had hosted on Short Attention Span Theater, but he was relatively unknown. He said he wanted to pitch us a show. And so we went to a diner with him in uh, Southern California one morning. And he said, I want to do a show where people actually talk. A talk show where people talk instead of just pitching their stuff or talking about their books or their movies. I want to talk about real issues and I want to get serious about it. And I want to go up to the line and I want to cross the line. I'm calling it politically incorrect and I want to get in trouble because it's going to be politically incorrect. And we said, sold. We bought the show on the spot. I enjoyed that version. Then it got canceled, brought back. Now it's real time. Well, so. that show has been kind of around the block. I mean, the interesting thing about that show is it didn't do very well for the first six months. I mean, Bill took a long time to get his footing. He got... A brilliant producer in Scott Carter, 
they just made that show into a powerhouse. So much so that it was really a key show for us, and I wanted to do some advertising about it. Right, some bus advertising that you did that he did not like at all. <laughs> That's right. We did we did an outdoor advertising campaign for Politically Incorrect, which I was very proud of. And we'd shown it around. We'd shown it to Scott Carter, his, uh, his producer, and we showed it to some of the other programming people. We did not show it to Bill. I did not show it to Bill. Why did I not show it to Bill? Because Bill would kill it. Whatever it was, it could have been the greatest campaign ever. I knew Bill well enough to know that he would look at it and say, that's no good. So we didn't show it to Bill. And I just ran the campaign and I got a phone call from Bill. And he said, I just saw your outdoor campaign for Politically Incorrect. I said, yeah. He said, it's terrible. He said, you know what? You did a terrible job on that campaign. If I did my job that badly, you would fire me, wouldn't you? You would fire me. You would cancel my show. I said, but Bill. And he said, so I am going to get you fired. I've already made some calls. I am getting you fired. And he hung up. And that was quite a moment for me. You know, I... I, <laughs> I would think it was, it'd be a moment for anyone, yeah. <laughs> I'd worked with edgy talent in the past. Um, but this, this was a new one where someone actually wanted to get me fired. I did not get fired, by the way, which was lucky for me. A few months later, the head of the ad agency who had done the campaign, Alan Kay at Corey Kay, brilliant, called me up and said, hey, guess what? We just got nominated for one of our campaigns for a very big award. I said, no kidding. Which campaign? He says, for the Bill Maher Politically Incorrect Outdoor. I said, no, 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 not anything but that. Just bringing it up was going to be a bad move. So he said, yeah. So he said, look, we're taking a table at the award ceremony. You're going to be there with us. It'll be great. We're riding to the awards. And he says, guess who is hosting the award show. I said, who? He says, Bill Maher. I said, you're kidding me. Bill Maher is hosting the award show where we're up for an award that for a campaign he hated? I said, this is going to end in tragedy somehow. But it didn't, actually. What happened is we went to the show. Bill Maher said, okay, the following are, you know, the finalists for out best outdoor campaign. And when he got to Politically Incorrect... And they showed a big picture of Bill Maher and the politically incorrect outdoor campaign. He turned around and said, now that's advertising. And sure enough, we won. <laughs> we won the award. Once again, that's, that's karma the second time in my life, I think. That's right. That's the, uni the universe. That's the universe just pointing at me and saying, you're going to be okay, okay? You're going to be okay. Right. You create this campaign. <laughs> it raises interest in Bill Maher's show, notably, right? Yeah. The ratings went up. Yeah. He attacks you, threatens yeah. you, and then has to stand there while you win the award for said marketing campaign while he's hosting right. and then probably hands you the award. If somebody had written that in a novel, everybody would say, ah, that would never happen. Right. That would be that two on the nose. <laughs> <laughs> two on the nose. And that's, what, that's what's great about memoir, because you're telling stories that actually happened that you couldn't possibly make up in a million years. Right. And and let's not let slide by the, when he said, now that's great advertising, they all heard a positive statement. You knew that was a dagger, <laughs> a final last second dagger in your back <laughs> before winning, which is classic. One thing that I was reading about in the book that I thought was class act. So Johnny Carson was doing his last show for The Tonight Show, and you guys just went dark in honor of Johnny Carson. That was something. Another great moment brought to you by the Buzz Committee. Again, the Buzz Committee got together. Hey, what's happening? Johnny Carson's, you know, last show's coming up. What are we going to do? And someone said, well, we're all going to be watching it. Maybe we shouldn't have anything on our channel. And somebody said, well, that's ridiculous. You got to put something on. And somebody else said, well, let's just go dark in honor of Johnny's last show. Not only did we do that, we, we put a little card up that said, we're watching Johnny Carson's last show you should be too. And we had that on for the entire hour, hour and a half, whatever it was. The ad sales guy sold that to a sponsor in one of the great advertising coups of television history. McElhaney Tabasco Sauce put a bottle of their Tabasco Sauce next to the sign for the hour and a half. Oh, and the best part? was really that Johnny Carson on his show that night, on his last show, said, I'm really uh, pleased to hear that Comedy Central went dark in honor of my show tonight. I just wanted to mention that. That was the biggest thrill we could have, to have Johnny Carson, to have the Comedy Central on Johnny Carson's lips at that historic moment. We, we were just floored, as you can imagine. That's a class act. That was a classy thing for him to do, to acknowledge yes, it. Absolutely. Very cool. So after the Johnny Carson thing, there was sort of a change at the top. You got a new boss. MTV started to become the big dogs at the top. And you got a new job. You went from marketing to new business development. 
Right. And then the other cool thing that you did was you wrote a book via Comedy Central, Websites We'd Like to See. Because if we're mid-90s, that would have been a great book to get at that point. <laughs> no. <laughs> right? Because it would have been so new. You know, the people hearing it now go, what? Well, a book about websites? No, no. In, in the mid-90s, it was brilliant. <laughs> well, I'll tell you exactly how that happened. A lot of people who were working at important jobs in the channel, when the management changed, either got fired or got shunted aside. And I went to New Business Development. And let's see, let me let me just try and remember the number of people in new business development at that time. Oh yeah, one. I was new business development. There wasn't a new business development for that. And I had to figure out what to do. I was joined by Vinny Favalli shortly thereafter. We had to figure out what to do. And we were told, well, look, you know, you got to, there's this new thing called the World Wide Web. You should probably put a Comedy Central web site together. So why don't you do that? So we started doing that. And you know, a lot of the websites in, in those days were just, they were rudimentary. It was just what we called brochureware. It would have the name of the channel and say, here's our schedule, and here's a couple of cool things about us. Bye-bye. And that was the whole thing. And we said, wait a second. We're a comedy network. We got to do a funny website. And so we started doing original comedy on the website. We actually hired a third guy, a guy named Dave Colin, who was a radio comedy guy. He had done a lot of writing and performing for radio. And we started doing funny stuff on the web. And we started getting known for it. In those days, Wall Street, if Wall Street heard something funny, you know, a joke would circulate in Wall Street and kind of get famous. And we started doing stuff. And all of a sudden, all the Wall Street guys were checking out Comedy Central's website to see what was funny that day. And we kept hearing back from them, yeah, keep it up. And then we decided that the whole thing was so funny, the whole website thing, because all these sites were popping up. We said, let's do a book of ridiculous websites. And that's what we did. Websites we'd like to see. A bestseller, I'm sure. Actually, it sold a lot of copies. Oh, I can imagine it because it, it would have been it would have been right in the mindset of websites at the time. I mean, that was the hot thing. Apply comedy to it. And then your new boss, Becca, things weren't as peachy. And yeah, well, you know what? Let me tell you something. The reason things happened is because the guy at the top, the president, who was brought in to oversee the merger, was not well-liked, and he ultimately got fired. And when your boss gets fired, he was my boss, your days are numbered. Anybody who works in corporation knows if your boss gets fired, something's going to happen. I mean, maybe not so terrible, but often you get fired too, especially if you're at a higher level. And they didn't fire me immediately. As I said, they put me in new business development under somebody else named Becca. I saw the handwriting on the wall. I chose to ignore it, which was, you know, pretty much of a mistake. I was there with Vinny Favalli. Vinny knew what was going to happen. He got a job as uh, in development at CBS. Everybody else who was not fired figured they would be and went on to other jobs. But I figured, man, I started this thing. How could they fire me? I started it. Then they fired me. And it was a very, very big blow to me. It was because I had taken channel upon myself. It was very personal to me, having worked on it for eight years, very hard. I worked very hard and seen it become successful by that point. And I felt terrible. There's nothing worse when you're so passionate about something and, and it gets taken away from you. I can't imagine what it's like to be in the in the TV world where it's it can be cutthroat and things change and agendas and all that kind of stuff. But it's amazing what you did, and it's amazing. Here we are 30 years later, and it's just part of culture. It just it is something so huge. So, which, which was my vision for it. I wanted to be part of the pop culture or the culture in America, and I think we've definitely succeeded in making that happen. Absolutely. But, you know, when you think about it, I know South Park and The Daily Show started to come as you were leaving. Right. But anyone, anyone listening that loves Tosh.0, Drunk History, The Amy Schumer Show, Nathan For You, Dave Chappelle Show, uh, all those shows came on what you built. And so, you know, so thank you for that. Thank you for creating the base that so many people were able to build on. And for all of us just sitting at home, we're able to enjoy these many, many years. Yes, I'm proud of it. You mentioned it. This is the April 1st, the 30th anniversary of the launch of Comedy Central, which is amazing to me that it's 30 years later and it's still going strong. Do you ever... Right, Bridget, and go, see, I told you it was a good idea. <laughs> no, I don't, actually. <laughs> no, nah, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Listen, Pete, there's, there's a million stories like that in the entertainment business. You All know right. that. Like, who's the guy who passed on Chinatown, you know? Sure, sure, sure. 
<laughs> well, Art, this was this was amazing. I, it was a pleasure meeting you and and hearing all these stories and and reading your book. And is there are you active on social media? Is there a place where people can keep up with your musings? First of all, you can go. To, they can go to my website if they want to know more about me and my book. And that's artbellwriter.com. And you can see uh, some of my other writing too. I'm still writing. I love writing. So there's some of my other writing. And there's an interview with myself or Facebook and uh, Instagram. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. This was great. Again, everyone, artbellwriter.com. Oh, and one more thing. Buy my book. Oh, yeah. On Amazon. You go to Amazon. It's, it's for sale there and for sale in bookstores. But don't forget to buy my book. And then don't forget to read it after that. I read it. Highly recommend it. Thank you again so much for being here. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for all the laughs that you brought to the world. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. All right. How fun was that? Art Bell, ladies and gentlemen, definitely check out his book, Constant Comedy, available on Amazon.com. All right. We're getting close to the end of the show, so you know what time it is. That's right. It's time to read a trending hashtag from the Hashtag Roundup family of games. That's right. If you play along one of the Hashtag Roundup games, one of your tweets might be read. I'm live from Detroit, the Jeff DeWaskin Show. Fame and fortune await you. You can download the Hashtag Roundup app for free, totally free, on Apple or Google app stores. Just search Hashtag Roundup. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Hashtag Roundup, and play along on Twitter. There's so many ways that you can follow and play and end up on a future episode. This week's hashtag is brought to you by Just the Tip Tags, hosted by Carmen and Jake. Their weekly game had an amazing hashtag recently called Hashtag April Fool's Prank Tips. That's right. They wanted to prepare everyone for April Fool's with some great great prank tips. So let's read some of those. Let's get ready for April 1st. It's not only April Fool's Day, it's the 30th anniversary of Comedy Central. So much to celebrate. All right, here we go. Hashtag April Fool's Prank Tips. When plastic wrapping a toilet, don't wrap the toilet you use, wrap the other person's toilet. Ah, that's what I've been doing wrong all these years. Here's another great tip. Do it on April 2nd, not April 1st. That's when they'll least expect it. Ah, yes. But I think if it's on April 2nd, you do run the higher risk of going to jail. All right, here's another great hashtag April Fool's prank tip. After you rubber band the sprayer on the kitchen sink, don't accidentally use it yourself. Ha <laughs> ha, how many of us are guilty of that? Oh, here's a good one. Tell people your cat's favorite color is orange when you secretly know your cat's favorite color is green. <laughs> Imagine what fools they'll look like in front of your cat. All right, here's another one. Call the zoo and ask for Mr. Lyons. Hello, is Mr. Lyons there? It's been done so many times that it's just not funny anymore, and that's why it might work. All right, everyone, now you got your homework. Hello, zoo, is Mr. Lyons there? All right, here's a here's an important one. April Fool's pranks. They're only worth it if there is lasting physical or emotional damage. That's setting the bar pretty high. Okay. Oh, this is the worst April Fool's prank of all. Call their landline. Who is this? How did you get the number? Oh, here's a great April Fool's Day prank. Park a boat sideways in some sort of canal. Ah, that could never happen. And finally, the last hashtag April Fool's prank tip that we're going to share. Don't tweet about it. Okay. All right. That was fun. That was so fun. All right. Definitely grab the hashtag Roundup app. Follow hashtag Roundup at hashtag Roundup on Twitter. Play the hashtag games so you can be on a future episode. All right. Can you believe it? This episode is come and gone. Episode 47 is officially in the books. Thank you to Art Bell for joining me. Everyone check out his book, Constant Comedy. And thank you to everyone listening, all the fans that come back week after week. It means the world to me. I'll see you next week. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Jeff Dwoskin Show with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Now go repeat everything you heard and sound like a genius. Catch us online at thejeffdwoskinshow.com or follow us on Twitter at Jeff Dwoskin Show. And we'll see you next time.